The war between Russia and Ukraine is a war of nationalisms. Not nationalism, nationalisms. What we are seeing play itself out in Kyiv and Mariupol, in Kherson, and across eastern Ukraine is a conflict between two national visions that are ultimately incompatible. So what are the origin points of these national visions? How has the history that is in some ways common, but in some ways distinct for these two countries, influenced their respective national visions? And just how incompatible are these two conceptions of nationalism that we now see themselves playing out in conflict in Eastern Europe? I'm Dr. Nolte, and for Blind Politics, this is Eye on Ukraine. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode in our ongoing coverage, Eye on Ukraine, through Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Please also share it with your friends if you think the content is good and it's helpful in understanding the headlines that you're seeing on your daily news feed. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on the Facebook and Instagram feeds of the Robertson School of Government. And once again, as always, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. What we're looking at right now play itself out is something that many in the West thought was now impossible, a war between competing visions of nationalism. The whole idea of the European Union, of much of sort of global cosmopolitanism that has been sort of propounded by the West over the past couple of decades, was that this type of war between nationalisms and nationalistic countries would be impossible. The narrative about nationalism that comes out of Europe is that World War I and World War II are essentially a result of clashing and competing national visions. And there's also sort of a sense that we've all moved beyond this. If anything, the past several weeks should disabuse us of these notions. Russian and Ukrainian nationalism have come to confront one another over this basic question. Is Ukraine a separate, distinct nation that has a right to exist as such? Or is it the part of a broader Russian nation, a greater, broader Russian nation, and as such integral to the continuance of that Russian nation? Both of the sides in this conflict see Ukraine as integral to their national vision. The Ukrainians for obvious reasons. The Russians for reasons that are a little bit less obvious, but from that Russian nationalist frame can be considered very compelling for historical reasons. So what is the history that these two sides draw from? What I want to do quickly here is lay out first the Russian narrative and the background of it, then the Ukrainian narrative and the background of that. This isn't necessarily to say that anything in either of these narratives is completely true, but we need to understand the nationalist framework from which the two sides are coming here if nothing else, because it will show us some of the really difficult aspects of untangling this war now that it has started. Let's start with the Russian side. The Russian story begins right around the year 1000 AD, with the baptism of a king known as Vladimir the Great. Vladimir was the king of a people known as the Rus, a previously pagan people of sort of Viking origin, but with heavy Slavic elements as well. 
Vladimir was baptized by a pair of Greek missionaries named Cyril and Methodius, coming from Constantinople. Greek and Latin Christianity were still united at the time, but there was certainly a little bit of competition between them for potential converts, and converting the Rus was a major coup for Constantinople. First of all, Black Sea trade, of which Constantinople was largely in control, made the realm of Kievan Rus extremely important for the then Byzantine Empire. Second of all, it would mark the borders of the westward possible expansion of Latin Christianity. In other words, the fact that the Kievan Rus was now in the sort of Greek or Greekish, Greek adjacent fold, meant that Latin Christianity wasn't moving any further east from its western base in Rome. So what did this conversion look like? Well, the Greeks weren't insistent on the newly converted Rus actually adopting Greek as their language, although they did certainly adopt much of the liturgy and heritage of Greek Orthodoxy. We'll get more into this a little bit later in the week as I've got a podcast that's either going to be a long one-parter or a uh, two somewhat shorter two-parters where we get into a deep dive on Eastern Orthodox theology. So just a heads up, that is coming down the pike. But what is significant here also is that St. Cyril, one of the two missionaries, was also something of a gifted linguist. And so he takes the then unwritten Slavic language that the Rus used and creates an alphabet for it, which then allows for not only the translation of the Bible, but also the Greek liturgy. This alphabet is called Cyrillic, and the language that we see translated here is known to linguists as Old Church Slavonic. So what we have is the establishment of a Christian kingdom in the Eastern Orthodox style, what would later become a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church as the East and West split in 1054. But they have their own liturgical language and their own alphabet created for them by this Greek missionary Cyril, this alphabet being known as Cyrillic. Now, by the end of the century, Kievan Rus is one of the most prosperous kingdoms in the medieval world, particularly the medieval Christian world. As we will come back to in a minute, Ukraine and Russia both have bonkers potential when it comes to producing just truckloads of wheat. Ukraine in particular, one of the jokes about Ukraine is you can drop an apple core and get an apple tree a few months later. But just the amount of product of of agricultural uh, produce that comes out of these areas bordering the Black Sea is phenomenal. And so you can see how that would lead to things like rapid population growth, increased wealth, the influence of Kievan Rus spreading around Europe, and of course their influence spreading from Constantinople, because they are now the favorite European power of the Byzantines, and so they're being showered with Greek culture, their princesses are being invited to marry into the Byzantine royal family, and so on and so forth. So it's good times for Kievan Rus. The capital, of course, is what is now known as the city of Kiev. So if you're looking at the history of the Russian Orthodox Church, its origin is here. It's with the baptism of the first king of Kievan Rus, who's ruling from the city of Kiev. And so as you can imagine, that's where the cathedral starts. That's where the missionary efforts begin from. It becomes a really important site in the history of the Russian Orthodox Church, because it is, in a sense, the mothership. It's not the mothership now, we'll get into that in a second, but it is that historical origin point. It's more like Jerusalem would be for Catholics than Rome, but pilgrimage to the Holy Land is still really important for Catholics. Okay, moving on. What made the good times come to an end? The answer for Kievan Rus is pretty much the same as the answer for China, 
the major dynasties of the Middle East, and just about everybody else who ran into this late medieval juggernaut of conquest, the Mongols. Mongols would conquer Kievan Rus, reduce it to vassalage, and essentially destroy the heartland of that kingdom. But the culture of the Rus survived, and eventually descendants of the royal family of Kievan Rus would move to Moscow, and after a long period of time as glorified tax collectors for the Mongols, this is something that I try never to let the Russian nationalists forget, their national origin was actually as people who were collecting taxes for foreign overlords, but anyways, after a long time and in that position, Moscow then emerges as the leading center for the new concept of Rus, for the new Russian national is the wrong term here, but um, concept of, of Russian peoplehood is, is maybe the best way of putting it. Russian peoplehood being defined by a common ethno-linguistic and also religious slash liturgical heritage. The Cyrillic alphabet, the Slavic languages, the patriarchate, which is reestablished now in Moscow, and this heritage that combines Slavic culture with the legacy of the Byzantines in religion. And boy, does that get ramped up when in 1453, Constantinople sacked, placed under the authority of the Ottomans, and basically there now no longer is that Byzantine Empire. And so the princes of Moscow begin taking on the heir of the Third Rome, seeing themselves as the natural heirs of the Byzantines. A new title came with that new pretension to being the Third Rome, a Slavicization of Caesar, otherwise known as Tsar. This is the beginning of Tsarist Russia. And so the legacy of Tsarist Russia, when, you, when they trace themselves back, goes back to this idea of Kievan Rus. It's born in a city that is now not part of Russia. Then, of course, you also have the transition to the Soviet Union. It's important to keep in mind that while the Soviet Union is seen as a sort of communist power or the evil empire to those outside of Russia, and frankly, probably seen as not the best representation of their culture or beliefs for a lot of, for example, Russian Orthodox within Russia, nationalism is a very, very strong and compelling force for the Russians. They see themselves and always have as sort of distinct. There is a suspicion of outsiders, which to be fair, you probably would be too if you'd been invaded by the Mongols. Lots of people who are invaded by the Mongols end up with a serious xenophobia complex later in life. And you combine that with the fact that there's this stark religious difference between the Russians and the rest of Europe. The rest of Europe has its origins from Latin Roman Catholic Christianity, whether they're Catholic or Protestant. But the Russians are Orthodox. They have that Byzantine legacy, and they're the last defenders of it. So even though there's sort of, you know, a rejection of communist ideology, certainly from the Eastern Orthodox, well, the Soviets did make the Russians into a great world power, one of two. And so when Vladimir Putin says the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical tragedy, many Russians are hearing that not as a pining for the lost glory days of the Soviet Union and the KGB and communism, but more from that they're putting more emphasis on that idea of geopolitical tragedy. In other words, the collapse led to the dismemberment of the Russian Empire. And more importantly for the Russians, the dismemberment of Rus itself. The independence of Ukraine is for the Russians, the independence of the motherland, the origin point for their national idea, their ethno-linguistic and religious heritage. What about the Ukrainians, though? The Ukrainians have a very different story. Yes, it starts with Kievan Rus, and they would hearken back to the glories of Kiev, 
as the origins of Ukraine. But Ukraine's experience is very different. Yes, they're kind of under the thumb of the Mongols, but Ukraine literally means borderland. They're on the border of the West. And so there's always part of Ukraine that's a little bit facing the West and a little bit facing East. Ukrainian Rite Catholic Church is uses sort of the Greek liturgy, but is in communion with Rome. And while it's not a majority in Ukraine, it is a fairly substantial community there. You also have, for the Ukrainians, the important idea of the Cossacks. Who are the Cossacks? Oftentimes they're escaped serfs, but they become sort of a very feisty mm, clan, tribe, uh, federation. Hard to exactly pin down what they are. Anyway, the Cossacks have a transactional relationship with the Tsar, in which they serve as the Tsar's bully boys in exchange for being left alone. They also tend to have not the best relationship with some other groups in society. The Cossacks are generally considered to be fairly anti-Semitic, um, and Cossack was a byword for anti-Semitic pogroms, really up until the Holocaust. But there's another side to the Cossacks, and the Ukrainians like to cite this side in their own national narratives. The Cossacks are kind of sort of democratic-ish, if you squint really hard. They have elected hetman, or leader of the Cossacks, and so there is a sort of democratic aspect to it. And they are fierce fighters and have some cultural and linguistic differences from Russia. So that identity for the Ukrainians is fairly important. Obviously, as we can tell by the election of Volodymyr Zelensky, maybe not so much the anti-Semitism, but they certainly do emphasize the democratic components. While they are firmly Eastern Orthodox, they see Kiev, not Moscow, as the head of sort of their Orthodox tradition. So you can imagine Thinking back to the podcast that we did with Dan Harry at the end of last week, how the independence of Kiev from Moscow might affect the Moscow Patriarchate's claim to legitimacy. But there's another and altogether darker aspect of Ukrainian nationalism that plays an important role. Ukraine is briefly independent after the collapse of the Russian Empire, but eventually is reabsorbed into and amalgamated into the Soviet Union as the Ukrainian People's Republic. Joseph Stalin, who was the ruler at the time, decided that he was also going to try and break the class known as the independent peasantry or the kulaks. A little bit of an introduction. Most of the land in Russia and Ukraine at the time, which was early Soviet times, was owned by large landowners. And so initially, there's an effort by Lenin to redistribute a bunch of this land, giving it to individual owners. This is extraordinarily popular, actually. And what you find is you get a bunch of peasants who previously worked the land who now own their own, albeit small, plots and properties. And they have a real opportunity for economic advancement. But Stalin decided this wasn't really thoroughgoingly communist enough. He wanted to collectivize the farms, essentially recreating the old feudal manners, but with the state replacing the landowners and, in theory at least, redistributing the grain to everybody on an equal basis. From each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, after all, is the economic slogan of communism. So Stalin decided he was going to put this in practice, but to do that he had to liquidate this class of independent peasant landowners, or kulaks. By any definition, what Stalin tried to do would have been considered genocide, except for the fact that the UN Convention on Genocide was specifically written in such a way as to prevent such a designation. The extermination of classes or political groups is explicitly not genocide 
Because the Russians, or the Soviets in this particular instance, knew that they had done exactly that, and they didn't want to ever be called out for their genocide. And of course, they didn't really re regard the Ukrainians as a separate ethnic people. But it turns out a lot of the independent peasants were Ukrainians. Here's what is so astonishing about this, and by astonishing, what I actually mean is genuinely horrifying. Remember what I said a few minutes ago. Ukraine is one of the most fertile areas in the world. Russia's right up there, but seriously, Ukraine can produce a huge amount of wheat and other grains. It's like the fifth largest wheat exporter in the world, and it's the size of Texas. What did Stalin do? He managed to cause a famine in Ukraine. Literally, this is the equivalent of causing a famine in Iowa. I'm not even exactly sure how they did it. Um, you probably need someone who is an agricultural economist. So if you know one who's an expert on the Ukrainian famine, or Holodomor as it's known, please let me know because I'd love to interview the, the person about exactly how this was done. But it is an astonishing, horrifying fact that the communists managed to cause a famine in one of the most agriculturally productive regions in the world. The next time somebody tells you that communism looks good on paper and just hasn't been tried, remind them that this is an economic system that caused a famine in the world's breadbasket. Anyway, back to Stalin and the Ukrainians. What ends up happening is that about 4 million people die in Ukraine. The population was such that I believe it's about one out of every eight people in Ukraine. And this, by the way, is the famous instance where a New York Times correspondent, Walter Durante, said that he had no evidence that there was a famine going on in Ukraine. Well, he knew full well that it was happening, but he wanted to maintain that access to the Soviet system, and so he lied about it. The Holodomor is extremely important for Ukrainian nationalism because it becomes the moment at which the Ukrainians feel like they're being killed for being Ukrainians. Certainly, there's a separate idea of language, identity, and culture, the Cossack roots, the glories of Kievan Rus, and so on before that point. But it's hard to estimate the role the Holodomor plays in the modern Ukrainian notion of nationalism. If Ukrainians had such warm notions of Russia, why would over 95% of the population have voted for independence in the referendum? Well, the Holodomor is a large portion of that example. So let's go back to that statement by Vladimir Putin, where he said, the collapse of the Soviet Union is a geopolitical tragedy. And now let's listen to that statement through the ears of Ukrainian nationalists. They hear that as an attempt to reestablish the system that killed one out of every eight Ukrainians in the 1930s. They're going to have a very different reaction to the Russians who are thinking about it more in terms of making Rus great again and restoring those national borders. So can we reconcile in any way, shape, or form these two incompatible national narratives? I don't really see how you do it. The Ukrainians are absolutely, in my opinion, never going to submit to being part of Russia again. Leave aside the question of the Cossacks, the language, which was often suppressed by the Tsars, the religious differences, Ukraine has more religious freedom and certainly religious pluralism, and the Ukrainian argument that there's this sort of history of democracy, which I think is legit, but also maybe just a little bit overplayed. It's hard to say historically, and I'm certainly not enough of an expert on the internal politics of the Cossacks, but certainly it is something that they have grabbed onto, and it's part of the national myth-making. Even leaving aside all of that stuff, how is Ukraine ever going to submit to somebody who has said that the collapse of the government that killed one out of every eight people in their country was one of the great geopolitical tragedies of the world. Imagine a situation in which 
a German chancellor, said that the collapse of the Third Reich was a great geopolitical tragedy, not pining for fascism necessarily, but at least it made Germany great again. And then they start talking about how they want to annex Israel, and how Israel really should be part of Germany. This would not go over well. Maybe it's a little bit more extreme to talk about the Holocaust here, but for Ukrainians, one out of every eight people dying is a really high death rate per capita. And it's very important to understand this dynamic as we think about Ukrainian nationalism. So I don't see how Ukrainians are ever brought to an acceptance of that. But on the other hand, Russian nationalism has its roots in this history that comes from another country. It might be that Russian nationalism or the, the Russian national self-conception can be sort of modified. And that there can be a recognition that while the origins of the country are in what is now Ukraine, the country itself has changed and evolved and is a separate country. After all, our origins as Americans really come from the English political, religious, ethnic tradition. And we're not still part of the British Empire. And if anything, we are a much larger and more populous country than the motherland from which, at least nationally speaking, whatever our ethnic background, our self-conception sprang. So it's not totally impossible, but we also don't share a land border with England. And, you know, the history is has never been, you know, us having them as, as part of our country. It's rather been the opposite. So I'm not exactly sure how that would work out or whether that would be considered acceptable to Russian nationalism. This is ultimately something I'm afraid that is going to be settled on the battlefield. And it does indicate that this is probably not going to be a short war where Putin is looking for an easy off-ramp. I think, to a certain extent, Putin genuinely and profoundly and deeply believes in this vision of Russian national greatness, a vision that requires the incorporation of a country that does not in any way, shape, or form view itself or want to be part of his Russia. How does this end? How does this get resolved? I'm not sure, but it looks to me like it could be fairly bloody. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I know it's not the most encouraging, but I think it's important for us to understand the historical narratives and the use of history in these very different national conceptions. Nationalism is not necessarily always a bad thing. Certainly, I think we would look at what the Ukrainians are doing and describe it as a heroic example of people defending their nation's right to exist. But nationalism can also make conflicts like this even more intractable and difficult to resolve. So I can't say that we're or we would be better off if we didn't have these nationalist aspects or elements to the conflict. But you can kind of understand why maybe some of the more global cosmopolitan-oriented folks would hope, at least, that we are beyond this idea of national wars and national conflicts. But that is a false hope. The reality is, nationalism and the idea of national pride, national honor, national self-determination, and so on and so forth, are here to stay. And we don't do ourselves any favor by pretending the real world isn't in fact the way it is. In fact, I would argue that pretending that these issues will just sort of go away or can be negotiated away, or that everybody sees themselves as a citizen of the world, as is sometimes said, well, that idea is just false and preposterous. And believing it too much leads us to be unprepared when we have the type of conflict that we do now in Russia and Ukraine. With that sobering, but I hope clear-minded and clear-eyed assessment, I'll close the podcast for today. And so for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte with Eye on Ukraine, signing off. Mm-hmm.